Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Got a fun show for you today. Tarquin Cooper reached out a couple weeks ago. You know him from the color for the Red Bull X-Alps. He's been doing that for the last few years, the kind of main commentating. He was commentating in this year's film as well. And he's he and I have been friends for a long time. He's a budding pilot. I think that'd be the right word, but he's super into it and uh, chasing it now a bit and had a really cool adventure right after the race this year. He went and sailed in the fast net and it was a massive storm kind of compared to the 1979 craziness where all those boats went down and lots of loss of life in the 79 one, not this time around, but I think over, he talks about that in this episode, over a hundred boats pulled out because it was pretty wild out there. They had a pretty wild experience and adventure as well. But he reached out because he wanted to, he thought it'd be really fun to talk about the kind of behind the scenes. As you all know, I was invited over to cover the race this year as well with him. We were kind of partnering on the color and I was meant to be in the air every day and doing a lot of live broadcasting, which I was in the air every day. We were uh, mostly successful with getting it live, but many times not just because the cell coverage and the equipment and we were all learning very new gear. I also had a pretty wild incident of landing in a tree, a very, very high tree. So we cover that pretty amusing story. Although it was a little scary actually at the time, but uh, that all worked out pretty well. And yeah, we just thought it'd be fun to talk about the behind the scenes stuff, who was really impressive this year. The speed of the race, of course, was, was crazy. I know I talk a lot about the Red Bull X Alps because it's a favorite topic of mine. So and we just had Paul Gushabauer on the show. So hopefully this will keep you entertained, even if you aren't into the Red Bull X-Alps. And wanted to mention, we just put out another bonus episode. This is kind of 201, the second version for the pilots there. The first one with Caliph was the first bonus episode we did was really meant for pilots that were just leaving the nest. This is after you know a few hundred hours, so more, maybe almost at the level of what my book is aimed at. So kind of intermediate advanced pilots who are figuring it out trying to decode the invisible and he has a lot of really fantastic ways of teaching and articulating this level of flying we had a lot of fun with this everyone has access to the bonus material it's it you automatically do when you're a subscriber and you uh, contribute to the show but if you don't or you can't then just let me know and i'll set you up with a lifetime subscription all we've ever asked for is a buck a show but I know many of you, that's a stretch, and that's totally fine. This will always be ad-free, and it will always be free. And for those of you who do support the show, thank you very much. Appreciate that. But you can find that on the website, that bonus stuff. And if you don't have access, like I said, just shoot me an email, and we'll make it all so you do forever. Enjoy this really fun talk with Tarkin Cooper, and we will be banded together for the 25 event, most likely, unless I get, I'm still thinking about racing, but right now this is the plan is to do that again. And I've got much better equipment this time around. I've got it all sorted. So A, I don't land in trees because the camera gear messing me up and B, it should all work really well uh, in terms of bringing you a lot more coverage from kind of behind the scenes and, and especially from the air. Should be a lot of fun. Cheers, enjoy the show. 
Tarquin, look at us, looking at each other again like we were in the race. How are you doing, man? I'm awesome, Gavin. It's great to great to see you. How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, good. I, I Things have been a little frantic. You know, it, it was frantic for the race and it's been a little frantic, but, you know, in the house now. And I went for my first little hike and fly in ages the other day and we've had a really nice fall. So, but it was good to catch up with you via email and I'm glad you suggested we do this. You had a you had a different experience than most do after the X Alps. Most people just go to relax and <laughs> you went on a on a on a boat and got slammed in a storm. What what happened there? Yeah, so I kind of jumped from the frying pan into the fire. Um so I had this big thing on the on the diary which was to to do the fast net race. Uh, which is a, a really iconic um, offshore race, 700 nautical miles from from England all the way out out the channel um, uh, to the southern tip of Ireland, around a rock there. And um, so that was a few weeks after um, the race, and I was crewing for a friend's yacht. And on the opening night, it was it was pretty spicy. It was a force eight gale, and uh, at one point I was I was below deck. It was about I don't know one o'clock in the morning, and uh, I'm, I'm bailing. We're taking on a lot of water. I'm bailing. At the same time, I'm being sick because everyone was sick. There were seven oh. of us uh, and, and everyone was throwing up. I mean, it was just, and, uh, and, and then, and, and then a fire breaks out. <laughs> so it, it, it just <laughs> what? Su suddenly smoke just starts billowing out of this cupboard. And what had happened was we were taking on water and that was getting to the batteries. And then, and then I remembered I'd done my sea survival course, but I couldn't remember which fire extinguisher you're supposed to use for electrics. So I was like, wait, is this the right fire extinguisher? <laughs> But in the end, we solved it because we we tacked. So we were healing quite 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 over. So we were on one side, and so by by changing direction, changing our, our direction against the wind, we we're able to lift the other side out of the uh, water. So, meanwhile, also it, didn't a hundred boats or something cancel before it yeah, even got going or something? Yeah, what uh, eighty-two boats pulled out that night. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, isn't this, was this the most comparable race to the famous one? I mean, there's legend stories. It wasn't at 79, the fast net where they had all the boats go down. Yeah. I mean, fa that right? fa fa fast net, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the North face of the eye girl that, you know, it's, it's got a kind of legendary cult status, partly because of this, this terrible tragedy that happened in, in 1979, where, uh, I think 20 or so, um, sailors died. I mean, um, but things, everything yeah. has changed so much since, since then. I mean, you know, back then they had, you know, some boats didn't even have any communications equipment. They just had a a long wave radio at best, you know, a weather yeah. forecast was, was something you got once every 12 hours. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of rescue your lifeboat that you got into was, wasn't much better than a, a kind of kid's rubber dinghy. Um, now, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you, know, you know, everything's so much, so, so much more advanced now, you know, technology, the weather forecasting is so much better. Um, I mean, it's now mandatory that you have to do a sea survival course. Um, so you actually have to learn, um, you know, how to how to get into one of these life rafts. And, and the one thing that you learn on that is that you you step up into your life raft. In other words, yeah. you, you get into it at the very, very last minute when your boat, you stay on your boat as long as possible. As long as it's floating, you stay on it and you only get in that yeah. life raft when 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 it's the only option. Yeah, you don't you don't you don't want to leave where you got all your food and all your stuff and the water maker and you know all the yeah boats even when sinking are better than a life raft. Life raft is the last ditch. It's like our reserve, isn't it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's Absolutely. The last ditch effort. <laughs> but uh it was a fun, it, well, was, cool. it was a wild wild adventure. 
But I bet and you've been into sailing for a while, or is this a is this a passion? Not yours? really. This was a classic kind of conversation with my neighbour, and and uh, I sort of mentioned that I was into sailing, and he sort of said, "Oh, great! I'm I need crew." <laughs> So yeah. I kind of I kind of be <laughs> winging it slightly, it's gonna be yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of <laughs> winging it a little bit, um, but no, it's all good, all good. And, and you guys I, finished? Be... Yeah, we finished. Yeah, it, it, it went well. We we did um, pretty okay in our class. You know, we weren't out to win. Yeah. Um, and what's amazing, you know, after this massive, you know, storm, big, big sort of four or five meter swells. Two days later, we were in the middle of the Irish Sea, and it was flat calm, absolutely flat wow. calm. Um, and of course, at that point, you're praying for wind. And then, you know, the phrase, you know, be careful what you wish for, because another storm rolled through. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was it was it was an exciting time. But I, I was glad to glad to make it onto to terra firma, actually, when I got off the boat. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Fires are never fun and uh, storms are, aren't fun. You know, it's interesting The all the sailing I've done, I've, you know, I've been around the world twice. You get more. I, I was a lot less worried about storms early on. I, I became, I, I got more and more and more humble and more and more and more afraid as time went on, which is the opposite of say paraglider or something. As you, you know, as you get more experience, you get better. It, it all becomes more manageable. And with sailing, I just got more and more scared all the time of the, of the seas, because when you start fighting that stuff in the beginning, it's novel. Ah, this is a storm. I've read the books and, you know, it's kind of this, fight to survive. And, and as time goes on, even with like, you're talking about GPS, you know, when I, back when I got into the day, it was, you know, when I worked on fishing boats up in Alaska in, in my late teens, it was all Loran. We didn't have GPS. My, my captain lost a ship the year before I got up there in the, in the Bering Sea. And it was still no joke, but you know, I, anyway, the, the storms are just scary. And, and you feel very, very, very small at, at sea, regardless of the boat you're on. And yeah, it just be, I just got more intimidated. Of course, I got more experience. And so I knew how to deal with it better and how to reef and how to understand and basically not go out there if I could, if something was coming rather than, yeah, let's go out and battle this storm. But, you know, sometimes you still just get caught out. The, the funny thing about sailing is it's way harder typically to do something like the fast net when you're coastal it's it's the same as paragliding the weather changes constantly and really fast and sometimes really violently whereas when you're being offshore is is way more cruisy typically if you're if you're doing it right and you're going in the right season you've got the current working with you and the wind working with you and the only nightmare really is a squall and they're very brief and very fast and so it's really more, you know, circumnavigating New Zealand or circumnavigating Ireland or going around in, in the English Channel that's much more difficult because you've got traffic and storms and things change really fast. And it's much more demanding sailing than being offshore. Being offshore is actually pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing in the, in the channel. It's a major shipping lane. And you're seeing these these huge yeah. tankers, and you're looking at the the green light and the red light, and you're trying to think, <laughs> trying to remember which which one means it's gone past me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the you know eyes play tricks with you, and uh, but it's quite funny when oh, when yeah. we finished the race, we, we had a little bit of a penalty because the um, the coast guard had tried to get a hold of us during the race, and our radio wasn't working. And we um, the reason for that is someone's AIS device, their you know emergency thing was 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 going off. We didn't realize it, uh -huh. um, and so we got our knuckles wrapped. We, the coast guard, while I was trying to put out the fire, were also trying to call us, and I tried to get back to them and say. 
you know, um, no, all's well, right. but um, they, they couldn't hear me. So um, we nearly got a, a penalty for, for being out of contact. Um, but in the end, it was okay. But it reminded me of, of during the Rebel X-Ups when, when Kinga got her, her yellow card for being out, out of contact. So uh, that, that right. amused me a lot. Yeah. For yeah. A little bit. She was but quite that, upset that about that too. I didn't realize that until kind of after, but she's, you know, sounds like she had a good night and kind of bivvied and, but yeah, I, I think, I think on the show, but yeah, look, I think something got lost in translation on that one. Um, I don't really know I exactly, so you know, what happened, but, uh, but, you know, she was just out there. I had, I'd spoke to her the other day. She just had a, a really great adventure and, and, um, I think, uh, yeah, just, just went off grid for a little bit. Well, it's good. It's, it's good timing that we're talking because the film just came out, which I enjoyed. It was done quite a bit differently than in the past. I mean, it still really mostly showed the leaders, which is always, you know, it's always tricky to, who are you going to show? And, uh, but the, I, I liked the talking heads. I liked the explanation and that's really what we were trying to do. It was so thankful that you put me on the team this year and the, the feedback I got from the fans were that this is great. Now we understand what's going on. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to pair this, I think, into future editions in 2025. What, what a lot of people were telling me is they, they want to know why Tarquin is in this position, why Gavin is this position, what, what's, what's going on. And it was, it was interesting. I'm sure way more frantic than in past episodes. Cause you know, I don't know about you, but I was driving all night, every night. It was, it was impossible to keep up with these guys and, and girls. And it was just frantic. It was, yeah, I thought the race was really frantic. <laughs> I have experience with that, but God, it's frantic what we do as well. And I'm sure that was driven a lot by the, just the speed of things this year. But I think next time we'll have to almost have a side show of, of what we're doing because I, you know, it was, we would just pop up and we'd be in Tracy May or we'd pop up and, and be at one of the, at the turn points. People, well, why are you there? What are you doing there? What's going on? Yeah, that, that, there would be a lot of swearing in uh, in, in my van. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yes. Where's it? You know, what? Where am I going to go do now? You know, and and sometimes going taking a wrong turn, and I'd end up completely in the wrong direction. I mean, you had this great idea, Gavin, that yeah, that we should have a little uh, GPS unit on us so that the fans can see where we are. And I'm a little yeah. part of me is like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> because like oh, my worst during during the last race uh i think it was after uh Lermus, where we, we plugged it in for the you know into the google into the sat nav and i planned to go into the alberg valley to, to to follow the next phase of the race but um in the end i kind of then buried myself in the laptop to try and follow the stuff and then we ended up driving into the, the autobahn route the long way round via you know into um uh you know uh, burn yeah exactly yeah basically on the yeah. we were on the on the, on the highway and then suddenly i realized i got to go live and then i'm i'm in the middle of some random farmer's field trying to make it look as hilly as possible <laughs> just like just completely in the wrong place but you know that happens from time there's to a time. lot of that isn't there i mean there were there was a there was a time on the coldu petit saint bernard you know i was up there most of the day uh paul gusherbauer got in the night before that was you know right after damien lacaz had his epic flight around dent ocean and made it all the way around in one go and then the next day i basically spent the day there just capturing the athletes coming in and leaving and 
Tom Dorlado was one of the last in that day. I think he was 16th at the time, and but he was having a heck of a race. He was in really good spirits. And because I could see that he was probably going to be the last one in, he was really racing to get in and get up off the hill. And he said, well, hey, where'd everybody else go? And I said, well, everybody else went, you know, this aspect, which was, I guess, to the West. But, you know, then it was late in the day. So it was, it was where they were taking off earlier in the day to get the East aspect sun. And so, but he said, well, I, I'm going to go there. That's the fastest one. And as we were hiking up together, I thought, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, the, the sun's really the other angle now, but we were committed at that point. And so we launched and immediately it looked like we were just going to land literally back where he'd started. It, it was, we were barely going to make the coal because it's quite flat up there for quite a long ways. He sort of starts diving down to the Aosta Valley and, and, but we both saved it. You know, I was above them and filming them and I was live and oh this is amazing this is amazing but I was doing the live Facebook thing and I had to be live with you at 5 p.m. you know that's that was our daily deal and for the evening show and so you know we're digging out and it's rowdy and it's lee side and and I'm you know I'm with Tom and I'm not I'm not helping him but I know he's happy to have another pilot in the air because it was really quite rowdy and we were really low I mean we just had to kind of, kind of kept squirting off the pass to get to where we'd have more terrain to work and we finally got to the bottom where there's the intersection of the Aosta and the stuff going up towards you know the Dufour Spitz and Monte Rosa and all that and and we're digging out and I'm looking at my watch going I gotta be on the ground I gotta be on the ground. I could, I gotta do a show with, with, <laughs> with Tarquin. I, I can't be doing this. I can't just be flying. And it's just, it's so funny how often that happens where you're just, oh, no, I have to land and, and do a show. Oh, but I want to fly. <laughs> it's, I'm it's quite a hysterical so bouncing around. So just rewind a bit. I mean, what were your perceptions going into the race? You must have had a, like a preconceived idea of how the race was was done, and what 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 kind of changed in your mind? Was it what you know? What was it like on the other side? Well, one, it was really it was a lot of fun. I you know, I mean, I have to be honest. I think the athletes often have a view of the race organization that's maybe not totally positive. <laughs> I guess I should say, you know, there's there's just there's a lot of marketing and there's the, there's the sponsorship and there's, there's all the things that make the race go. And as an athlete, we all understand that. We all understand that you have to have all that to make such a big operation operate. Right. But, uh, you know, I think there's often a viewpoint that there's just too much emphasis on the, the marketing side and the, the, the filming side and the cameras and, and all the things and working from the other side, it gave me, I, I love the whole race even more, I guess, it's, you know, the, to see how hard everybody on now this side, you know, now that I'm on the, the Zoom side of the race is working and how much they care and how much passion there is and and how fucking hard it is. It's just it's hard. There's a, I was amazed with how hard it was. And 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 again, I guess a lot of that's maybe the pace, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't back off. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, the easy out would just be, okay, I'm not going to race off to that. I'm just going to cover what we, you know, what I'm here doing, but nobody does that from the zoom side. Everybody's just, we got to get more, we got to work, we got to get it. There's, there's all this exciting stuff going on. And so it was, it was very eye opening for me and, yeah, like I said, it, it just makes me love the race even more. It was, you know, it was very cool to be part of the the talks, 
before the race even started, you know, how is this going to work and how are we going to handle the safety and how are we going to handle the communications? And I guess I knew already that it was complicated and it was big and it was a lot of moving parts, but I didn't really understand the depth of it and how how really truly complicated it is. You know, they, they always say, I used to work in media for NBC and we, we covered this big golf race in Tahoe every year. And they always, this sounds crazy, but apparently from a media perspective, golf is one of the hardest things to cover because there's 18 holes, there's a ton of different cameras and color. In other words, you and I are the squawk box into our ear while we're trying to go live and talk, you know, so that's Esteban for you and I is 18 different, you know, there's all these different cameras and there's all these different things and they're trying to make it look very natural. And the, the guy running the camera, you know, okay, we're going to go to green. We're going to purple. We're going to five camera number five, you know, the live show. So Esteban for us is, is one of the highest paid positions in NBC because it's so complicated. That's golf. Could you imagine? I mean, so now let's take 1,200 kilometers in a straight line with 32 different athletes spread all over the joint. And, you know, it's amazing how complicated it is. So yeah. to try to keep up with all that was really fun and really hard and really complicated. And I'm just really excited. You know, I, my camera gear, all that stuff we were dealing with, you know, that was a system we, we learned literally right before the prologue. And we were, we didn't really figure it out until day seven. And so that'll be really cool to use that stuff properly and, you know, get I think me in the air more and report on it. I think this, this was a real, you know, we really tried to do things differently this year. And I think much more focus on, on kind of on, on live output, on the social media stuff. Um, also, you know, it's nice to hear your comments on the documentary. I think that's gone, gone down quite well. We've really tried to do things, yeah. you know, do things a bit, just a bit more, you know, in, in a new way. And, but you know, what a lot of people think is, you know, there's just, a, there's an assumption because it's Red Bull, there's just tons of money and we can do the hell we want. And, and actually, you know, Red Bull is effectively just the title sponsor. Um, you mm. know, there isn't, you know, there, there's not so much flexibility that, that, that you would imagine. So yeah, it's yeah. just, I think some people would be surprised. It's basically you and me uh, and a guy back in the office trying to pull it all together. Um, with a little bit of help from maybe one or, or, or two other people. Um, and, uh, yeah. but definitely I think we, we've proved that, that, that it, that it works. And I think the idea of, of getting you up in the air filming live, I mean, looking ahead to the future, I mean, it would be amazing if we could put live cameras on, on the athletes themselves, you know, now let's go and see where Damian is. Let's see where Kriegel is or, um, but I think this is definitely the, the way forward. And we've proved that this is, that this works. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I I think what we're still missing in a sense is just the weather. You know, if we could somehow have, and and we're, we capture that when I'm up in the air. But the, you know, the there was there was a lot of PTSD for me in this one because the four events, the four races I've done, there was always some pretty hairy weather not so much in 2019 that was just stability and the heat and stuff but the you know the to see what those guys were flying in from col du petit saint bernard through kind of the italian side of the of the alps going through the lakes you know on on the live weather cams that day 
it was gusting over 60k an hour you know it's just so far from recreational flying that i still don't know that we're able to show that to to the audience you know to to be in my position that day flying from the dufour spits towards uh domodosola you know, it was just starting to ramp up and get, and that was the day I landed in the tree. And that was not because of the weather. That was because wing damage, which maybe we'll talk about, but the, you know, it was really, really gnarly conditions. You know, it was, Maxine was practically in tears at the end of that day. You know, it was, and, and he and I talked about that after the race and Zellum say it just the ridiculous amount of exposure and risk that, the the pilots are are taking especially and but making it look really good damien lacaz flew 11 hours and 20 minutes that day you know but but, it's but, but actually, really I, I, experienced pilots that understand that you know to go to be in the air for 11 11 hours and 20 minutes and only go 267k says something it you know it's it was brutal and and really rowdy and so you know i i think if if there's some way to overlay and show some of that is i i think would just my mom wouldn't understand but the pilots who watch the race would understand yeah. and it's, it's I, funny I that's I, what's I, really exciting about it i had a, i had a very similar conversation with with damian um uh, Lacaz just a couple of days ago, and he was talking about that. Just if there was a way to, you know, like like it to go back to sailing in the in the Vendée Globe race, you know, you as as a viewer, you know, you can put the overlays on there on the on the weather map, so you can see exactly the storm as it's rolling in, you know, or mm. or to have air spaces, for exa example, on on live tracking. Um, I mean, that would be an amazing feature, so that you could see why, you know, you might not understand why, you know, as an athlete approached Innsbruck, why they've gone off in a really bizarre direction, you know, and and the airspace might explain that. But um, mm. yeah, Damian, interestingly, he he actually said that you know that big eleven-hour flight wasn't wasn't that big a deal for him. That's not the moment. That, that that he's most proud really? of uh it was kind of wow for, for him it, it was more the case well of course i was in the air for 11 hours because there weren't any turn points that day you know it was a big so i just stayed flying um yeah. it's not his longest flight he's ever done i think he's done over 300 kilometers but he he said his oh, yeah. his proudest flight i think was from the um uh up to, to uh, towards mont blanc he he took a yeah nissan to mont blanc he did a he did an interesting line that that really worked out but again, to go back to what you were saying about when things are getting rowdy towards the end of the race, he, he was saying he got completely pinned and, and you know, to, to have any kind of penetration, he had to go on full bar, but then he started sinking and he was, you know, and, and that wasn't working out. So he'd come off the bar to, to, to climb and then get, you know, pinned again. And, and he just said it, and a Kriegel yeah. meanwhile was just in his, this is the kind of stuff where Kriegel's in his element. But in the end, Damian said that he he came and landed, and and he was lucky that the wind actually was at ground level was 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 pretty okay. But and and I think Maxime also landed, and that was you know where he really had a had a rethink about his priorities. But it does seem in those yeah. in those situations, Kriegel just enters a different zone. He he's just just finds some, just comes into his own really, doesn't he? And and if there was a way to tell that, the problem is is if you interview Kriegel. He just sort of say he talk about it like it's just a normal flight. I did what I have to do. Yeah, yeah, you know it's it was. I mean, there was we we saw that we saw that in the twenty twenty one race too, where you know he and Maxime landed within feet of one another down uh, in the Vallis, and and Maxime took the southern route and he went north, and we all went, "What the hell's Kriegel doing?" And then the next day, you know, 
those were, he talks, well, I don't think it was that ferny. I mean, the fern was just dumping. I was there going the other way into the Fish Valley. It was just crazy. And, and for him, it's just, you know, this is, this is what you got to do. And, you know, to, to pull these leads off and get ahead uh, of that kind of talent, just he's really in, in different stratosphere. I mean, I've never really seen the emotion on on Kriegel's face, but I did see it that day. At the end of that day, um, meeting up with his supporter, uh, who was uh, Thomas Thomas Turilat, and he was very very stressed. <laughs> he had not had a yeah. had a good day because you know he's trying to drive, he's trying to keep up with Kriegel, which on these roads, as you know, is a nightmare. Kriegel's calling up all the time, saying, "What's the win? What's the win? What's the win doing?" And and and, and Thomas, at the end of the day, he, he was just like, "No, no media." No media. I don't. I don't want anyone. You know. <laughs> oh, cut. Uh, and, yeah. and he was. He was really. He was freaked out. I think at the end of that day, <laughs> much more than Kriegel was. Um, yeah. But, it's. Uh, it's really the. What you were asking me. You know what. What the some of the differences for me. What the, the the really interesting was for me, just kind of inside in my in my being was the the number of times I was standing on launch with these guys. You know, shooting. And and thinking, wow, I'm really not in their mindset. It's you know, th- knowing the conditions are going to be windy today, that kind of thing, and they're just they're not even thinking about it. Versus, you know, when you're not racing, I, I just kept thinking, I'm really grateful I don't have to go battle this. You know, <laughs> whereas if I'd been in the race, it would have been a non-issue. You just you're just in that mindset and you're, you're, you're there, but I never got in that mindset. The, the only time was maybe close was flying with Ellie. That was the longest flight I had in the race. I flew about 70 K with her from in the in Valley, uh, just, just outside of Innsbruck to, to the Laramos turn point. It was a beautiful fly. It was great. We, it was, it got a little rowdy around, uh, around the Zugspitze because we were, we were in the Lee. It was quite a strong North day, but she made an incredible move the night before leaving the turn point in, in Kimsey and, and was the only one, I believe of all the athletes that flew the in Valley. And she passed a ton of people that night. And then the next day, it was a really good move by her team. And, and I had never flown the in Valley because of that airspace. It always just made me really nervous. So I had always gone North and all of our, until Laramis was what everybody else did, but they had a great game plan and it really worked and she stayed in the air and she flew really well. But that was, you know, the only time that I, when it was kind of rowdy near the Zugspitz, I thought, yeah, I'm not in the X Alps mindset. You know, I don't like this. <laughs> Whereas for her, I'm sure it was just not, it was nothing. It was, but it, it's, it's interesting how that you snap into it and you're you're in it and you're fine. But yeah, I, so, so I, I didn't feel that way. And is a camera guy. <laughs> yeah, so that's really interesting. You say that because for the first time, I, I did my first ever hike and fly race a month ago, and and I, and I got to experience that that mindset even even a little bit. So it was um, Paul and yeah. Aaron's new, um, it's their new hike and fly race Wonder series, Wonderbird. Wonder uh, they got one in Murano. Uh, there's one in uh, Salzburg. Uh, and this one was the, the one in the Stubaital. And um, it's a really fun, great event. And, and it's really there for, for kind of everyday um, you know, pilots like myself. Um, but there was, a, there was a crossing that you had to do from one side of the, of the valley to the other. And uh, I was a little bit gung-ho. And I was going across. And I, and I, came, I, had a, I came to a crossroads Either I, I saw a little patch where I could I could land high. That was my goal was to just land as high as possible and then continue on foot, or um, 
I was going to bottom out. And um, I thought maybe I could scratch around a little bit. That's probably what a, a more experienced pilot would have done. And eventually patience would have um, paid off. I'm not a very patient person. <laughs> and I, I, I knew that I would, I would have just ended up, you know, on, on the valley floor. But so, you know, what happened was this little clear, it was a clearing in a, in a forest. And uh, I just thought, you know, fuck it, I'm, I'm going for it. And I, I went in and landed in there, which is something that I would never do in, in normal recreation flying. But like it's race mode, you know, the red mist has come down. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, someone's going to overtake me. I, I don't want to end up in the bottom and have to hike another 700 meters. So I was just like, hell, let's go in here. It'll be OK. And it was, you know, there was branches everywhere. There were tree stumps. It was yeah, really not an ideal place to land, but it was OK. I landed bunched up, carried on the race. And, and that's the, the kind of mindset, isn't it? Of, of something like just on a much bigger scale on the Rebel X apps where you just, you just keep going. You just, you just launch your wing and you fly in whatever conditions there are. Yeah. One, one of my favorite days of the whole race was I was up on the Neeson, uh, the morning that Kriegel came up, you know, he pulled his night pass that night before and got down into fruit again. And we all kind of thought he'd made a mistake and cause he didn't really cover much ground with the night pass, but it ended up putting him in perfect position, although he had to climb the Neeson where most of the other pilots just climbed up a little ways out of Frutigan and then flew up there. But watching everybody come in that day, you know, it's day, God, was it only three, but they'd already covered so much ground and watching just one, the tightness of the gaggle still at that point in the race. And then watching most of them at one point, Tim Alonghi, Simon Oberauer, Toby Grocer Batcher, there was one or two others. They they landed on the top of the Nissan. I mean, it's blowing 20K. It wasn't really necessarily rowdy, you know, but stiff enough wind. And it's blowing from the south side, you know, so it's it's the opposite side that they'd come up from. So they have to kind of wing it across to the very cliff side. And, you know, the top of the Nissan is it's not a place you land a paraglider ever. It's just rocks and there's no, there's this tiny little flat area. And then there's the signboard and all the people, you don't land a paraglider there. And they all did. They just come in, they swoop in big wing overs. I mean, Tim Long, he's doing helicopters. It was amazing. And, you know, but they're, they just boink right next to the signboard on the top of a 3000 foot mountain. That's completely, it's a knife edge up there. And, and sign the board, pull up their wing and take off. You know, it was seconds for all of them. Seconds. Just and, and there, none of them were up there for more than a minute. And don't forget, some of the athletes didn't even bother hiking. You know, Pal Takats just walked a little bit up, <laughs> launched from the, you know, the hillside, thermaled his way up and then landed. And he did that in a few places. Yeah. He did it near Davos as well, you know, because he yeah. knew that was his weakness. He couldn't keep up with the guys. So, and, and also people are now doing that outside of Lemus. I remember when I first, you know, uh, followed Rebel X Alps on the road 2017. You know, everyone would hike up, you know, do these big hour, two hour hikes all the way to the the official launch, wherever it was, to the top of the mountain. And I can't remember who yeah. it was who first did it, but it was maybe 2019. And someone just thought, well, you know what? Just 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 try try launching off the the ski slope, just this grass field just behind, you know, just, just like a few hundred meters up. Yeah. Behind the yeah. side. And, and Kriegel also did that as well on the, the Titlis year, which was 2019. He did it after yeah, Davos. Davos. Yeah, he just, yeah. just launched. And that was the, that was actually one of the funniest things was, was um, <laughs> so Kriegel, you know, he's racing against the clock. And, uh, 
you know, some little old lady stops him and says, uh, oh, can you can you take a selfie of me? You know, can, 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 we, can I do a selfie? And she gets her phone out and she doesn't know how to do it. And she says, you know, you know, like a little old lady. And Kriegel in the end just <laughs> grabs it. Takes the phone, says he takes it, gives it back to her, then carries on and then ends up, you know, <laughs> being the only person to uh, to land at Titlis. Um, that was quite a spe- that was actually quite a special highlight for me covering the race, actually, to be up there oh, yeah. and and get him there and then and then spend the night on on the mountain. Um, and they kind of did a lock in. And I probably shouldn't say this, but some not me, but uh, some people did do a little uh, recce of the uh, the ski station and found some beers and a few other goodies. So we had quite a good night. <laughs> you know, there's there's always these moments in the race where you can go that's where he got it. Of course, it's all the little things and they really add up, but there's, you know, that day, and I had him on the podcast about this because he and Maxime the night before leaving Lermoose were 5k difference one another. And he pulled a really interesting move that night too, where he all said they're thermaling together, huge overdevelopment, big storm. And, and, and Maxime's thinking we can't be in the air anymore. Kriegel just top lands real quick. And Maxime's going, wow, why would you do that right now? We could just get another 10K and fly down to the bottom of the valley, which is what Maxime did. Well, Kriegel hikes up another 100 meters, relaunches, gets 5K on him, you know? And that was, and I, I'm convinced, I don't know if Kriegel said that, but I'm convinced that he, because he worked out the math for the next day. I got to get to Davos by this time in the morning. I got to get off the hill by this time to give me a chance to get to Titlis in this time. That's good. You know, he knows that, that route better than anybody. And he knows he's got to get up there by a certain time, or it's going to be the snowstorm, which it was. And, you know, so he gets to Davos and looks at his watch. I don't have time to hike any higher. I got to make this work from down here. You know, he always talks about that sporting risk and he's the only one that pulled that off to, to top land on, on Titlis. And he won the race that day. And so you know, none of us, none of the rest, of, the rest of us had to do 5,000 meters to get up there. And, you know, it was, that's going to wear you out. And he just, he saved 5,000 meters of hiking and that was it. Race was over. That reminds me of something that Aaron said. So as you know, everyone was coming up the glacier to the top of Titlis, hiking up through the snow, but not Aaron. Aaron just kind of clung to the, to the rock and he just took a sort of direct line up this sort of rocky ridge line. And when I said to Aaron, hey, why not hike up the snow where everyone else kind of came? And he said, snow is for skiing. <laughs> <laughs> of course of classic course. classic Aaron. yeah classic Aaron, and um, also a beast god oh, he just he was just out here for the global rescue x red rocks the hike and fly race i uh, uh do host and organize and he won it last year and he came back to defend his title and he was sick as a dog it was just there was green stuff coming out of his nose and his mouth and he was really sick and he really had to fight harder this year than year one you know he had some some pretty good talent chasing him hard including pal tackets but yeah these these guys are animals that the, the whole point of that thing with the nissan the, you know the, the nissan was just it was really cool to see it from that other perspective you know i would have been one of those guys flying up and landing hopefully at the top like those guys did but you know just to see the talent and the skill and the you know to watch it from the the bird's eye view was was very cool that was you know i'd never when you're in the race you just you see you and you see your team and you know what you're doing but it was very cool it was neat homework to to see how other teams operate it's fascinating what would be Gavin's top three moves? Who who most impressed you? 
Tim Alonghi impressed me throughout. You know, I thought that he, you know, to A, to have broken his back in January and to have that comeback. I mean, that must have been a moment where you go, I mean, I can see keeping it, you know, Paul had that injury and going into the 20, was it the 19 race where he broke his leg? Or was, uh, was it 21? Yeah. I mean, I can see keeping the race on the docket because it keeps you motivated. But I mean, to be in a, a clamshell and, you know, to know, okay, I'm not going to be able to train at all like what I was planning on training and coming in as a rookie. And I mean, he's obviously got amazing piloting skills, you know, with his acro background, but I mean, what an incredible comeback. And then the consistency for a rookie, often rookies go out pretty hard. They can do well for the first few days, uh, but they, they make too many mistakes and they just, they don't pace themselves very well often. And Tim was just consistent. I, I don't think he was ever out of the top 10 all the way through the race. And their team made really good decisions and they were just, they seemed emotionally very stable. I, I love their strategy. I love that he was having a lot of fun, which you can see in Powell, you know, Powell was having a lot of fun. Powell would be in my mind. I loved his approach. It was radically bold, you know, from the first day when he took off Kitzbühel, uh, that's bold to take off before you really even know if it's working, uh, you know, to risk bombing out the first day and, and then to leave before everybody else did. I mean, I flew with the whole gaggle almost all the way to our grind that first day. And, and it was a gaggle. I mean, everybody was together except Powell. And I didn't know he wasn't with us. It was because of what I was hearing on the radio, you know, Powell's 10 K ahead. And I thought, what? That's not true. We're all together. There's Kriegel and there's Tim and there's Paul and there's Aaron. And we're all here. And Paul's and that must be a mistake. Cause I wasn't watching live tracking, but I went back and watched the replay and he was, and he kept doing it. He kept making these moves that were, uh, you know, I, I know from being in the race that I would not have personally been able to do that because you're, the risk reward is massive and to, to leave the gaggle and to do your own thing, especially early like that. I mean, you've got the gaggle to work with and he's a really good comp pilot. He knows that that's the fast way to fly is to stay together. And, and he just kept doing that. He kept just going for it and i that was really cool to see because i know how hard that is to do it's it's not competition flying where you know you bomb out who cares you've just blown a day you get to you get to maybe make it back the next day it's the x-alps is is punishing when you make mistakes and especially when the pace is as fast as it was this year where you can't afford to be on the ground for two hours in the middle of the day. You know, that's the difference between second and 20th in this race. And so, you know, for him to just keep rolling the dice like that was awesome to see. I asked him about it. You know, we put him on stage at the X Red Rocks and, you know, I asked him about that. You know, how did you get, why, where'd that come from? And I don't know that he really gave us an answer. He was it's just, he was just in that mindset. It was great to see. Andy seemed like he was, was having yours? the most fun. I mean, I mean, he was, he was just, he was just hollering and screaming and you could always, you could always, you know, point uh, pal out cause he was just, you know, <laughs> he could hear him a mile off. 
Um, what was it was my... cool to have. I mean, I think his I think his approach too was that you know I mean, he he wasn't as fit, although he is pretty fit. He's underselling that quite a bit. But you know that that whole thing it was kind of like Aaron in the in the race in 2019 when he said, I think at the end he said he walked 19 kilometers on pavement the whole race. You know, he made it to Monaco. He had a really good race, but his approach was just. I'm going to take this as a pilot. I don't have the knee. I, I can't walk. So I have to fly this race. And so he just, he had that approach that I'm going to, I'm going to fly it. I'm going to stay in the air. And that's what Paul, Paul, Paul did, which was really cool. It's hard to do. Yeah, no, definitely. Powell, Powell is up there. I think with the, the, the if, if you were to have like a, a pop, an athlete of the, uh, of this edition, I think he would definitely be up there. Um, who else? I mean, it, it could, it, anyone else that's the interesting thing about this race is that every single athlete who took part has will have had epic epic moves and has got incredible stories and low saves and close calls and and all these kind of things and and uh if there's a way to try and you know it's always the joke isn't it at the end i remember simon oberan is saying that you know he could write a book after every rebel x helps and probably every athlete could could write a book over each edition because just there's always so much kind of you know, going on. I mean, Paul, Paul had that amazing day where he went from, I think he was like 12th or 13th straight up into, to fourth place. He, he tagged five or six turn points in a day from Fisch, day. you know, Fisch up to, Fisch to you know, to Fru, 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 and all the way to, to Cold of Puddy San Bernard. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he came he, in that night. He, you're right. He was back up in the top five. It was incredible. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I think the the, the personal stories, it, it would be so fascinating to have that. I and mean, that was why John Chambers' book was so fascinating for me, because it's the only book that's ever been written about the exams. But the it's, and it sounds like Kriegel maybe just put out one, but that'll be fun to read. But it's, there's so much going on. And it was, you know, I spent, one of my favorite days was up at the, at the hut at the Sematosa turn point, which was really nostalgic for me because that was a turn point in 2015 and for me and it was i got to see a whole but i got there just as paul was launching and climbing out and and so everybody else so Mihal and uh rito and that whole gaggle that had left the dufour spits the day before tom de dorlado and it was it was really cool to see them come through and it was also just interesting to see gosh these guys are in 15th, 16th place, 17th place that are the last year they were in the top six and, but they were only in some cases minutes behind at that point in the race, which is a lot, you know, if they only had a couple more days to go only minutes behind fifth place. It was just, uh, it was remarkable to see how tight it was and how little mistakes, you know, Mihal launched from the Cimatosa that night. He had to run up the the wrong way and it, it, it started getting catabatic at the wrong time of day it was three o'clock in the afternoon it should have been really pumping up from the west and coming in and everything reversed in fact uh nicola and who was with him rito i think you know there's that little church kind of thing up above the above above the uh hut there above the refugio and they had to launch the wind was coming down the canyon. This is hard to describe unless you've been up in there, but it's coming it's completely the wrong way. And so they've got a launch going uphill 
and then wing it downwind down, you know, and let the terrain fall away from them so they don't crash. And then it was working and then they would get these climbs out. But Michal was just, he'd come in there 10 minutes behind those guys. Uh, Marcus Anders had just left and he was, and he was going, how do I launch? And I said, well, these guys did it from here. But at that point it was way too strong. He couldn't even do that. So he had to ground handle for about 20 minutes going up the Canyon and then winged it off this cliff. And, you know, with, it just didn't look like it was going to work. It looked like this was going to be catabatic all the way to the ground. And luckily he was able to, you know, and as soon and it, it was like, you know, he, as soon as he launched, he's just getting pummeled down. And then eventually the, the, the correct wind came in and, you know, that kind of stuff is just what's happening here. You know, what, <laughs> no, no forecast is predicting it. You wouldn't see it. It's way too early in the day to be catabatic. There's not ice and snow above us. So where's this coming from? And, and, you know, these guys have to deal with that constantly. But anyway, he got up high and went on glide and apparently, you know, took a bad line and it was 10 spots, you know, in, in his eventual ranking, it was 10 spots from where he'd been, you know, that just the tiniest of little mistakes and oh, what a penalty. <laughs> so Gavin, a, a question I've been meaning to ask you since the end of the race is what happened with the tree? You mentioned it earlier, but what, what, what really happened that day? You know, I've had, I've had a lot of hairy experiences in the, in the X Alps, but this was probably the worst, actually. It was so bizarre. So I, I hiked up over in the snow to get up to this crazy cool position right underneath the, the turn point at the Dufour spit. So we were just outside of the cylinder and I caught, uh, Rito and Nicola launching and, the video was incredible. It was beautiful. They had to do this kind of forward launch and run on flat snow. And then there was this totally vertical cliff, about 400, you know, 150 meter cliff, 400 foot, absolutely vertical cliff. And, you know, so their wing was up and then they launched and, and, you know, they, they did it perfectly. And I'm supposed to go live at nine. So this was about eight o'clock. You were live and the, the service up there was terrible and I'm running around trying to find better than one bar. And as you know, my camera setup is, was basically this arm that was about a foot and a half long with the iPhone out at the end of it. And it wasn't really fold awayable. So I had a bunch of trouble with this actually in the, the first day at Kitzbühel, I blew a launch because it would, you, you really had to be careful doing a re reverse launch because it's sticking out in front of your gear. And when you turn to go into launch position, it would, if you if we weren't paying attention to it, it could wrap up in the opposite riser. And so now I have all this sorted, but at the time I was still kind of dealing with how to do this, but I'm, I'm hurrying because I really want to be in the air for the nine o'clock show. And I'm right. And I can still see these guys. They're right there. And I want to get in the air because I can potentially fly with them for a whole bunch of kilometers towards the next turn point and into the lakes district and all that stuff. And so I'm kind of rushing, but soon enough, I realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to go live. I don't have the coverage. So I've, I've texted the team. Listen, I'm just going to record up. I'll use the GoPro on my helmet. I'll use the iPhone on my hip and I'll just record, but the live's not going to work. There's, there was no service back in there. And Tarquin, it was a class one launch. At that point, I didn't have to do the whole run and forward thing. The, at the top of the lift, there was this flat area and there was this very gentle, it, 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 it was ice and snow, but it wasn't that slippery. And it was, it was very gradual and there's nice air coming up perfectly. It wasn't crosswind. It wasn't too strong. It was just, I could just pull the wing up, 
check everything, turn, fly off. So the cliff now, I don't have to run off the cliff. The cliff is to my left side and my ditch. In other words, my, if something goes wrong, I've got a nice ditch to the right, you know, so this, this snow field is all flat to my right. So I pull the wing up and the first time doesn't work out and I put it back down and the wind is just coming in perfectly. So I pull the wing up again, check everything, looks great, turn. And now I'm kind of, and it's only about 20 feet before the cliff. And, and I've, you know, I'm doing my, you know, shoulders nice down. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a nice kind of torpedo launch. And as soon as I get airborne, it's pulling me hard to the left and I'm going, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm, I'm hitting to the right. So I, I know I've got something wrong in my left wing. So I slam the brakes, which makes me pull harder that way. And now I don't have my ditch. My ditch is to the right and my, I'm flying hard to the left and I look up. And uh oh, and there's something, and I don't, I don't notice that it's actually down in front of me. It's my, the camera is through the risers on the left side, and so it's got that side of the wing all messed up. But I'm flying, and my, my, it's pulling me into this cliff wall, and it's four hundred, like I said, it's four hundred feet, totally vertical. I don't have, I, I can't spin it and get back to the snow. I can't fly to the right. It's pulling me, and so I've already got as much right break as I can possibly have without spinning the glider to just fly sort of straight, but I'm flying into this cliff. And right before I hit the cliff, I just think, oh no. And I crack the, the right brake and it's just enough to kind of move me enough away from the cliff that I don't splat directly into it. But the cliff tears my stabila right out of the wing. So the, the wing hits the cliff and the stabila line just pulls right out of it. And it's just hanging down below. But that gives me, that's kind of released a lot of the pull of the wing. So at least now with a lot of the right brake, I can fly straight and real what's going on here. And I mean, it was really close to just pummeling down this cliff. It was as close as I've ever come to a really, really sketchy outcome. And so, but now I'm flying straight. The wing is just kind of, you know, that side of the wing has no stabilo. So the wing is just kind of, but, 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 but it's not cravatted. It's okay. And I see my, my camera gears in here so I can start pulling all that out of the riser. And in doing so, I break the end of the camera unit. So I can't use that phone. I just put it in my pocket and, uh, and think, Okay, I'll just go land. And but then I realized actually the wing is flyable. It's not great, but it's still it's just soft on that side. So it's hard to turn to the left. It it makes thermaling to the right weird, but I, I'm safe. the The wing is the wing is flyable. And so then I think, okay, well I'm going to fly. My driver was driving around a Domodossola, so he's down in the Aosta Valley. He's driving around a Domodossola. Domodossola's forty k. The conditions are really good. And I think, okay, I'll just, I'll fly to Domodossola. I'll land there. Maybe I can catch up with these guys. I, I couldn't see them anymore, but maybe I'll catch up with them and I'll get some footage. And so I start flying and it's not great, but it's okay. And I get to the ridge above the Makagnaga Valley. So Mono Rosa is up on my right. I'm well past the Dufour Spitz now. And it's really turning on. It's 11 o'clock in the morning now. And it's, it's, gangbusters and there's quite a bit of north wind and so as i'm flying along the ridge down into the makanaga valley and i'd had this really interesting experience there in the 2021 race that's where where uh bramfit did you know uh pummeled his leg he had that terrible landing there and i had a really interesting 
really fun. I didn't have a bad experience there, but it was really fun. That was my last night of the race in 2021. So, you know, I'm kind of nostalgic and, and, uh, still thinking I can maybe catch these guys, but now it's really on. And now I'm not enjoying flying this wing nearly as much. And I think, okay, forget it. I'm not going to make it into the Domodossola Valley. I should just go land. There was a valley off to my right that was one of the feeders down to the Aosta. And so I call my my support, my supporter, my driver, this guy Jack, and say, hey, you know, don't go around the corner. Start coming up this valley. I'll send you a pen, uh, but I'm going to I'm gonna try to land down here. And, you know, I'm kind of thermaling and I'm getting down and I get to this area where a beginner pilot could have landed a wing. It just was, you know, it was quite a tight valley, but there's big fields and no problem. But I mean, it's, you know, a little X Alps mode. I think, oh, you know what? I should fly down this canyon as far as I can, because that's going to make it a shorter drive for Jack and I can get going faster and go chase these guys. And so, I'm, but there's it's super narrow valley and it's all treed. I've never been in this. I've never flown in this area. And I'm looking at my maps and going, oh, it's probably 20K to get to a place where this looks like it's not such a windy road and there might be a landing. But you learn in the X Alps that there's always a landing. There's always a place you can put it down. So I just keep pressing. And now the wind is getting stronger. I'm basically flying into a Venturi and the wind is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so I'm, I'm, my glide's getting worse and worse and worse. And it's all trees. It's just a river and trees. And uh, yeah, okay. I don't need to, why, what am I doing? I should go land in a field. And so I turn around and start flying downwind and I'm covering ground really fast, but I'm not going to make it back to where these good fields, it's a very steep Canyon. And so I'm looking around a little bit desperately to find a decent landing. And there's one place that's, there's all this kind of a village that's up on a hill that's got all these tiers with a lot of rock walls and a lot of power lines. And in an X-Alps mode, yeah, that's a, that's a landing, but uh, I don't know, that, that's not great. But while I'm flying over that, just back down the canyon, you know, lower, is a field that looks pretty good. It looks quite steep, but it looks pretty good. Okay, that's my LZ. So I fly back down, you know, back into the wind towards that. And as I get in there, I had completely misjudged it. The, the decent looking field is a 45 degree slope. It's really steep and it's grass. It's nice, but it's really street steep and it's facing away from the road. So the road's at the top of that and it's steep like that. And the it's surrounded by huge trees, really, really big, tall trees and no problem. All I've got to do is do a big wing over and a big wing over and let the, let the, let the wing go and fly up this hill. Do the fly on the wall thing that you're seeing Maxime and Patrick von Kindle and Kriegel do all the time. And I've practiced this a lot. I've got that move. It's fine. So I do a big wing over to the right and I go to do the big wing over to the left. And I have completely forgotten that I don't have a left wing. I don't have any authority on that side whatsoever. I mean, this whole flying down the Canyon, I'm completely my 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 bandwidth taken up by finding an LZ and landing safely, and I forget that I've got a completely crippled wing. So I do this huge wing over to the right, which of course is going to give a lot of power and energy to the wing as I come down through the pendulum and come up to the other side. And I've got to have authority to bring that back now and do the whole fly on the wall bit. And I go to hit the left brake and lean, and there's nothing there. I'm flying dead straight. And right in front of me is this huge tree, it's about 80 feet off the ground. 
And I don't even, I don't have a chance at doing anything else. I'm not going to stall the wing because then I'm just going to hit the deck. And so my only hope then is, oh, I hope this tree grabs me. I hope that the wing hangs in the tree. And luckily I had the momentum as I'm kind of coming down through the pendulum for the wing to get in the tree. And, and I just pendulum through the bottom. I don't, I don't hit anything, but the tree, the, the tree makes a terrible sound with the wing. So obviously I've done some damage to the wing, but I pendulum through and it was so lucky. I pendulum back the other way thinking, oh no, no, I hope the wing holds. And as I pendulum through, I kind of turn around and there's another tree that's about 50 feet up and I'm, and I'm able to grab the top of that. That's literally just, you know, the, the cartoon character that grabs at the top of a tree and it just sways back all over the place. And I'm in the very top of this thing and just, woo, and you know, do this whole, wow, the tree kind of bends all the way down and comes back. It's, you know, being on the end of a bungee cord type of deal. And, and eventually it, it, it kind of solidifies out and I'm fine. Harness is fine. Wings up in the tree. And I call one, one, two, you know, our version of nine, one, one in Europe. And, immediately get this very nice lady uh, on the call and, you know, tell her the situation and, Hey, I think I'm going to need a tree kit, you know, or somebody to come help me out of this tree. And that is hysterical because they don't speak English and they put me on hold and this all takes 15 minutes. And while this is happening, I've got her on speakerphone. While this is happening, I start getting out of my jacket and throwing it down and, and taking off my, I uh, left my helmet on, but take off my buff because it's really hot. It's, and, and I'm sweating profusely and I'm kind of assessing the whole situation and I'm barely able to stay in the tree because the, my wing is the, the riser on one side, especially is really tight. And so I can't get out of the harness and, and they're telling me, you know, don't move. We need to come to you. Don't try to be a hero. Don't try to climb down. And I'm going, yeah, but I'm hot. And this is really uncomfortable because I'm hanging in the harness weird. And long story short, they, I was able to hang up the phone eventually. And they said, you know, emergency services are coming and I've, I'm talking to Jack, my driver, and I've given him the pen and told him what's going on. And it takes a long time, but eventually I'm able to kind of get enough slack on the harness to unclip the one side. And I'm you know, thinking, oh, I don't know if this is a safe thing to do because, you know, I'm, I'm in this tree I'm way off the ground still. I mean, if, you know, if I fall, I'm in trouble, but the tree doesn't feel very stable and I'm afraid it's my may break the top of it off or something. But anyway, I was able to get the harness off, throw the harness down, you know, basically unclip it from the wing, throw the harness down to the ground. And eventually I'm able to climb down out of the tree on my own. And uh, the rest of the day was pretty hysterical. We I waited for this Italian, the, 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 the emergency services eventually do come and they're adamant that I got to go to the hospital. There's no way I can be okay. And I know, listen, I'm totally fine. And so they put me in the ambulance and they do, you know, a, a blood, they don't, I don't think they did a blood draw, but they did, a, a, you know, they did the whole blood pressure thing on me. And she said, wow, your blood pressure is perfect. You, it should be much higher because you should have adrenaline and be, I, oh, no, you don't know me. I, I go through this stuff all the time. This is just another day of, this is just another day of Gavin. I'm totally fine. It was like 120 over 80 or something. And so, so they signed me off and it's all fine. I had to sign a bunch of paperwork that they could leave and they leave and a, and a, 
proper tree guy comes. He really knew what he was doing. And he goes to the top of this 80 foot tree and starts cutting stuff out and everything else. And then eventually I get my wing, but we're there all day. I think I did another report with you at one point. I went down, I found good internet in another little village, you know, halfway down the road or 30 minutes down the road and did a, did a show and it all worked out. And I was quite sheepish about the whole thing, you know, so I didn't, I didn't want the organization to know because I didn't want them to know about, you know, I didn't want them to worry about me, but everything was fine. I was given another wing by a Niviac dealer the next day and I was able to get to the Tracy May and tie in with Ellie when she came through and, and fly with her basically all the way to the raft. So it was, it was a little hiccup, but it was, I was happy with how it worked out. It was actually really scary. It was, it was not a nice situation. And, you know, now I have all the gear now that my, my, my kit this time will be a lot tighter for, for flying. It'll be much easier to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What a, what a story, Gavin. I mean, I, I remember you saying something that that day, you know, oh, you'd had a little bit of an epic, um, you'd had a little bit of a situation with a tree. And I was like, can you still make the live? You know, that's the only thing I cared about because I was in my own my own world of battling <laughs> yeah. stuff. And you were like, yeah, I can make the live. As we Great. are. We're on the live. Okay, right. What are, the, <laughs> what are our top three stories? Let's go, you know, Krieg or the lead or whatever. But, you know, Ellie's here. We'll talk about the tree later. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, that's... that's uh, but that's always the, the big fear, isn't it? With, with, with anything to do with filming. I mean, I lost a friend um, last year. He's, he was a, um, a paramotoring filmer and he, he died in a, in a midair. He's called uh, Dan Burton. He was a great guy. And people, mm. it's so dangerous. If, you, if you've got any kind of camera equipment, that's, that's so often the, the times when people get hurt. Sadly. Yeah, you have, to be, you have to be really careful about it. I mean, it's, it's, I feel much, I felt pretty stupid that day. I have to be honest, you know, just, I learned from Will Gadd, my first really big film project it was a Red Bull deal. You know, the very first day walking up with him to launch was just, Hey, you have to pretend. And for the next, however long this expedition is going to take, it ended up taking 18 days was just, we're doing the stuff we're doing is dangerous enough. You have to forget that these cameras are here. Just do your thing and don't, don't do anything for the cameras. And he basically was saying, I will not do this project with you if I see you do something for the cameras at any point, whether that's just an interview on the side of a glacier or anything, just you have to pretend that they're not here because it gives you, it, 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 they help you do things that aren't, you know, you wouldn't normally do. And so you have to be, and, and it, it, from the filming perspective, you know, I kept telling myself do, going that into this race, you know, hey, the this is way better than anything we've ever gotten. And so don't risk your life. You don't have to risk your life to get footage of, of anybody. And, you know, so this was one of those where it was so tame. It was such a nice launch. It was, you know, I just, none of my hackles were standing up on my back that, you know, that I was doing something risky. And so going to the next one, I'll just, I'll have really nice gear and that won't, it won't be an issue. Cause I've done a ton of that kind of filming where it's just get off the hill, be safe get a lot of margin then film <laughs> so it reminds me yeah, of a, actually a, a, it reminds me of a funny story i had a job a few years ago to film a um a red bull ironman athlete and i won't mention his name <laughs> i've sworn to secrecy <laughs> but i was filming him he was he was doing these repeats he was on the bike and he was going up and down this hill and he was doing it like 10 times and on the last one he decided to do like a superman maneuver where you you put your arms you know in front and then uh, you're on the tri bars and then your legs are kind of flat out behind you horizontal so you're basically horizontal coming down flying and of course he uh, it was for the camera he lost control 
and and t-boned into the the side of the road and ended up with oh. with concussion and i don't know if you've oh. ever dealt with a a, con- uh, a concussion victim they're a nightmare it's like it's like someone who's really really drunk he keeps repeating yeah. himself confused where am i who are you again what am i doing here I need, and, and a kind of real stubbornness. I'm fine, I'm fine. Take, oh, no, you know, yeah. Dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to take him to the hospital. No, 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 cool. Yeah, I'm fine. Let's let's go. I'm like, no, no, dude, get in the car. And in the end, I had to get his phone and call his wife or and just say, you need to speak to this guy and tell him to do as he was told. <laughs> he was he was fine in the end. He, he didn't do so well in Kona a couple of weeks later, but... Uh, Right, uh, it's it's been uh, it's been a blast uh, reminiscing, and and you know I hope uh, I, I'm really already psyched for 2025, and and hope that we can really improve on the learnings that we've um, that we that we had this year, and 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 I think really up our game with the the live you in the air. Maybe who knows? Maybe I'll go in the, go live in the air as well at some stage. There you go. Keep training, buddy. Keep training. Yeah, hey, yeah. I, I, we're we're up against our hour our hour here, but I do want to ask you before we go this bear grills thing. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> What's that all about? Well, okay, I'll, I need you to ask me about that. So back in the day, I'll get, we're, we're up against the time, but I used to be I used to write for a newspaper called the Telegraph here in London, and I used to be one of those journalists. I'd, I'd, I was writing a lot about you know explorers and adventurers doing first in the poles and mountains, but I really cared about. You know the, the the facts. You know you'd get these stories about people who youngest person to hike to the the North Pole, and then you kind of look at the detail, and they've only gone on the last degree. So you know yeah. that really used to annoy me, and and I was quite hot on on challenging people's claims. And in, it was in two thousand and seven, and Bear had done um, you know this high altitude uh, paramotor flight. Um, and I, as it happened, I was in, in Kathmandu at the time and I bumped into, uh, Gilo Cardozo, who was, who was there in Kathmandu. And I was like, oh, wow. How did it go? How did the expedition go? And he goes, yeah, yeah, we did it. It was amazing. Blah, blah. I said, I oh, great. Uh, and, and, and let's see the proof. <laughs> and I was, yeah. you know, I, I, I was literally like, kind of like, yeah, let, let's see. And it was like, he suddenly got really defensive and was like, oh, uh, well, you know, um, well, confronted that I'd asked him. Yeah, exactly. And he said, it'll all be in the, the TV show, you know, in, in six months time. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and then fast forward about six months, I, I, I called Bear. We it kind of, he wasn't really a close friend, but we, we knew each other socially and, and we had some friends in common. And, you know, I called him up and I basically challenged him uh, uh, about the flight because at the time there was a bit of confusion whether he had claimed to have flown over Mount Everest or just above Mount Everest. I think finally he he settled on or it was reported that he flew above Mount Everest, certainly above, um, you know, 28,000 feet um, above the height of Everest. And I, and I challenged him on that. And he said to me, but Tarquin, you wouldn't write that. You're my friend. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the funny, the, the, the funny thing is a year later, you know, Bear, this was just before Man V World went mad. And, you know, Bear is on every yeah. billboard from Los Angeles to London. And, you know, at the end of the day, someone yeah. sort of said to me, uh, only about, you know, five people really care about these things. But it does bring me to the, the you know, the, the interesting thing, what, what someone said to me, uh, well, it was actually Richard Meredith Hardy, who, who has flown a microlight over Mount Everest. You know, he, he said, you know, there are, there are three things in this game. There are, there are records, there are firsts, and there are personal bests. I mean, a record is not a record unless... You know, you've got the the the, the authority Stop there, it. stamps. You know, to document it. You know, you've got a you know someone with a clipboard. You know, whether it's a, a FAI, you know, triangle. You know, you've got to jump through various hoops. So Bear was never going to qualify on on the kind of record because I, I think that there's some arcane rule you've got to take off from a certain altitude and, and all this stuff. Um, 
you know, yeah. then there are firsts and, 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 and within it, within any of these things, you know, you need to, it's not good enough just to say that you've done it. If you're a free diver, you don't get the record until you, you've pulled the, the, the card, you, you've done the okay sign and, and, and there are other things as well you've got to do. And, and um, so that, that's, that, that's that. I think, I think for the record, the FIA still, uh, FAI, sorry, still uh, credits um, uh, Raymond Marillas uh, with the, the paramotoring altitude mm. record, which he set in 2009. Uh, and that was 7,800 meters. Um, mm. I think it's still it's still out there written that that, that Bear flew above Mount Everest, but yeah. certainly no. That could be Camp but, One, right? I mean, yeah. There's, there's, yeah. How do you define above? It's he, a big mountain. He's, <laughs> I think, he said at the time his his GPS wasn't working, um, which is unfortunate. Um, that's kind of bad luck. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. certainly. <laughs> So certainly, there's no no one has ever flown over Mount Everest in a paramotor. So Tongue there, there's, in cheek. There's a, yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, one has to be careful with what, what one says, doesn't you know? But yes, uh, cer yes absolutely. Certainly, the uh, the the flying over Mount Everest, you know, is yet to be done in a in a paramotor. Yeah. But uh, cool. but yeah, that's more amazing I, things I, to do. But 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 funnily enough, I I spoke. To, I know that his safety guy is in my paragliding club. Um, a guy called Scott, and um, we got chatting. And, uh, you know, I, I chatted with, with Bear a little bit on social media uh, this year, just saying hi and exchanging pleasantries because we didn't really talk much after that. And um, he, he sort of let it be known that in a, in a way he was grateful for the experience of me sort of challenging him. And really, it was I was quite polite about it and, and it was quite civil because it prepared him for what followed the following year. He, there was an absolute shitstorm where he was accused of, you know, like staying in hotels or kind of faking it on Man V Wild, which was really that, stupid, yeah. actually, because because actually that was a TV show. And, you know, it's kind of what you do when you're making a TV show. You do stay in hotels. And and and, and I have I have met people who, who work for Bear, you know, and they all say he does his own stunts, you know, on that stuff. He's, you know, I don't, I don't think you can question what he does. I mean, he's, yep. he does some pretty yep. ballsy stuff. But yeah, on that, that little high altitude... Uh, was it or wasn't it a flight above or over Mount Everest? I think we're still yet to get really to the bottom of exactly what he did, which is a shame because whatever he did, whatever he and Gilo did was still amazing. Cool. I, mean, I mean, it's still cool. Yeah. It still paved the way, you know, experimental. Um, and Gilo's an interesting character. In fact, funnily enough, I was talking to um, a colleague of mine, you know, we, we used to write about active sports, you know, on the, on the paper and his, for his, so I did one on, on paramotoring. And my guy, we're coming into land. He doesn't see the tree because my head is in front of his head. And uh, and I, I'm classic passenger. Don't say anything. He's the pilot. Don't say anything. And, and at the last minute, he sees this tree. We bank hard to the right, and you know we end up landing on a on a dry stone wall. But but it was okay. We we dusted ourselves down, and he bought me lunch. And I promised not to write about it. <laughs> but but my, my my colleague. My colleague did a he you know a year or two before or after I, I forget which but he did a story on Gilo and he's never flown in his life. Gilo puts him in a in a paramotor and says right off you go and, and just starts talking. This is what you do, and you know you, you just know you'd never do this. Gilo is probably only about I don't Whoa. know twenty twenty one years old, and this guy absolutely freezes in terror. You know shits his pants everything, near death experience <laughs> and. He's luckily he survives, but this episode then he then wrote a novel, and, and this novel's been published, and the, and the central character dies in a paramotoring incident, and 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 he describes this 
this incident of taking this off kid. where they, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's, he's up in the air and just convinced he's going to fly into some electricity pylons and. <laughs> Oh yeah, you would you, you you wouldn't do that now, would you? No, I'd, you like, I'd like to think I wouldn't. Yeah. So there's my bear bear grill story. Good stuff. Fantastic. Tarquin, great catching up with you. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad you pitched this and uh hope you all listening enjoyed it. But thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, really enjoyed it, Gavin. I can't wait to see you again in uh 2025. Yeah, man. Can't wait too. See you, bud. See ya. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost so if you can support us financially all we've ever asked for is a buck a show and you can do that through a one-time donation through paypal or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out we put a new show out every two weeks so for example if you did a buck a show and every two weeks it'd be about 25 dollars a year so way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account, of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.